Hello and welcome to the Hormones in Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Vivian Allred, naturopathic nutritional therapist and hormone enthusiast. If you want to learn how to rebalance your female hormones, regulate your menstrual cycle and reclaim your vitality, then you are in the right place. Each week I will be delving into different conditions such as PCOS, endometriosis, infertility, hypothyroidism, acne and hair loss. Stay tuned for interviews with expert guests, Q&As and solo episodes that are all intended to help you move from hormonal chaos to hormonal harmony. If you'd like to submit a question for me to answer on the podcast, then you can email them to hormonesinharmony at gmail.com. The information shared on this podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not designed to replace the advice of your health practitioner. That said, let's get into today's episode. Hello guys, welcome back to episode number 35 of the podcast and today we're talking all about small intestine bacterial overgrowth, also known as SIBO. You've probably heard me mention this condition a few times if you've been listening to this podcast for a while now and I'm so glad to have Amy Hollenkamp on the podcast who is a SIBO specialist, registered dietitian and holistic health coach that specialises in both SIBO and IBS. She leads an evidence-based conversation on SIBO and shares her own experience with her struggles in her blog post and website, The SIBO Diaries. She's passionate about connecting the dots and being a root cause detective for her clients. She also created the SIBO Root Cause Repair Programme, an online course to provide SIBO sufferers with the tools to identify and address their root causes naturally. In this episode, we discuss what SIBO actually is and how it's diagnosed, potential signs and symptoms that you may be experiencing and these don't have to be gastrointestinal based which is always interesting and shocking to some people as well. How SIBO can contribute to hormone imbalances like hypothyroidism and adrenal dysfunction and vice versa because hormones and SIBO tend to go hand in hand and it is kind of a chicken or egg situation. The role of endotoxins and how they can drive inflammation and produce internal stress potential root causes of small intestine bacterial overgrowth, including slow motility, food poisoning, and poor brain communication, the importance of the vagus nerve, and Amy's approach to treating SIBO naturally, including the best diet to follow, supplements, lifestyle factors, and the common mistakes that she sees people making all the time. I'm so happy to have had Amy on the podcast, and I really think that you're gonna find this episode valuable. I do recommend taking notes because she provides a lot of information and some of the things that we discuss are linked in the show notes along with where you can find Amy online and additional resources from both me and Amy. So I won't leave you waiting any longer. Let's get straight into the episode on SIBO with Amy Hollenkamp. Hi Amy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so looking forward to chatting all about SIBO today because it's something that we've not yet discussed on the podcast. I have talked about it here and there and referred to it a few times but some people are like SIBO what is that I've never heard of it before so could you give us an introduction of what exactly is SIBO and how does how do people know if they have it in terms of symptoms and testing? Yeah I'm definitely happy to be here too to talk about SIBO it's an area that I'm really passionate about because I struggled with it and it can be a very frustrating monster to kind of wrangle. (laughs) It can get out of control (laughs) very easily. Um, And so SIBO is an acronym for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. 
it essentially is when bacteria starts to overgrow or become imbalanced in the small intestines. We're not really supposed to have tons of bacteria in the small intestines. It's supposed to kind of stick more in the large intestines when we talk about having tons of probiotic bacteria that are health promoting. We want a nice balance, large intestines, but not having too much bacteria in the small intestines or imbalances in the small intestines. Um, and when that happens, it creates a lot of bloating. It can create changes in bowel function that leads to diarrhea, constipation. Um, you can, I think bloating is what the trademark symptom of SIBO where people feel like they're pregnant and it's, they're not actually pregnant. They just have some uh, air and that has been from bacteria ferment, bacterial fermentation and they're creating a lot of gas. Um, you can have gas too. Um, so you get a lot of the symptoms similar to an IBS type diagnosis. So you get kind of that cluster of symptoms that happens, but then it can also spill over into other areas of health where you start to feel affected by it. A lot of times people will have things like fatigue, um, they'll have uh, histamine intolerance, things where they're getting rashes, some skin manifestations, um, even depression, anxiety. It really hits a lot of different areas. And I do think if, you have this imbalance going on. It causes a lot of inflammation. It causes nutrient uh, imbalances and deficiencies to develop because that bacteria can disrupt proper digestion and absorption of nutrients. Um, so you get a lot of systemic effects when digestion is breaking down and SIBO is no different than um, some other some other gut issues in that vein where it kind of causes a cluster of other symptoms besides gut stuff. Um, so I think, and then in terms of like testing for SIBO, there's a couple of different methods. I think I'm sort of changing my mentality a little bit around the testing piece. Um, traditionally, they've we've been using a lot of breath testing. There's some questions in the air about breath testing at this point not being overly accurate. And I think a lot of those questions are valid. Um, not that I don't use them anymore. I use them, but I kind of look a little bit deeper than just relying totally on breath testing. And with a breath test, I guess I should explain what it is. Um, you're basically drinking a solution of sugar and if you have an overgrowth of bacteria, the bacteria ferments that sugar and produces gases. And you breathe into these little bags, and based on what, your, what gases are in your breath would determine if you had SIBO. Um, depending on like your transit time, that can lead to issues with how accurate the test is, but it really just takes someone to help you interpret the testing. Um, to kind of let you know where you're at. But the breath test is one. You can do a more invasive test would be like an endoscopy. Um, they can take a culture of your small intestines to see if there's an overgrowth. Um, more recently, I've been using a lot of uh, oat testing, organic acid testing to get an idea of bacterial byproducts. Still not a perfect test. <laughs> so I think with SIBO, there's 
still a lot of room for improvement in some of the testing measures that we have for it. But I think the most important thing that can help you with this is having a clinician or a practitioner that can help you take your, your case and your manifestation of symptoms and match it to what's going on on your testing and kind of help you develop a plan based on those things versus trying to solely rely on a breath test or solely, solely rely on symptoms. I think it takes someone that can help you interpret all this and make sense of it. Um, so is that like a good general rundown that yeah, I hit everything? Definitely. Yeah. And I okay. feel the same with the breath tests as well. I'm, I used to do them quite frequently, but I'm moving more towards like just going off symptoms a lot of the time. Cause once you've yeah. started to see people for a good period of time, you kind of know that they're going to have it. Um, obviously yeah. better to test and not guess in some cases, but a yeah. lot of times it's like blatantly obvious that they have SIBO. So you can just go straight into the treatment, but I've been doing more um, stool testing, so looking yeah. at all of the intestinal like flora because in the past I've done SIBO testing because I thought that they had it and then it's come back negative. Whether that's true or not is another yeah. thing. They could have like a parasite or H. pylori that's contributing to SIBO or is causing similar symptoms as well. So although it's not the gold standard test, it is a good indication in my opinion. Do you agree with that? Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think the GI map two has, or in other stool testing, whatever stool test you're using, yeah, has a lot of, like, if you see indicators, especially even like hydrogen sulfide SIBO, so there's different forms of SIBO based on the bacteria, you can, on a stool test, you can kind of see how the bacteria is laying out, and even methanogen bacteria. So you can look at different bacterial markers on those stool tests um, to see if there is too much of a certain bacteria that's associated with SIBO. Um, and my personal take too is I feel like SIBO is kind of evolving a little bit as well, where I almost think in some of the more recent research, there's some indications that SIBO might be more due to a general imbalance of the bacteria in the small intestines versus an overabundance. So it's still like an overgrowth, but more looking at like in proportion to the other bacteria versus thinking that like um, the bacteria is in an overabundance, if that makes sense. I know it's kind of weird to yeah, think about, but there's a subtle difference there too. And it seems like that might be more associated with symptoms. So if there's an imbalance of bacteria in the small intestines, it seems to be associated with symptoms versus some people that have an overabundance don't have symptoms and are fine. So it's like, it, I think we're continuing to learn a little bit more about what SIBO is and um, how it's causing symptoms. Yeah. I agree. And before yeah. you mentioned about potential symptoms of it, um, do you ever see people who don't display any digestive symptoms but still have SIBO like causing maybe skin issues or fibromyalgia, mood issues, those types of things? Yeah. So I tend to get people that are very downstream, so more complex cases. So most of them are typically having a lot of symptoms. Um, there are the rare cases though where people are like my digestive symptoms like they might be there slightly but they're not like my priority like my priority is my skin or sometimes there can be weight loss um associated with this and SIBO can be at play with that 
So I've definitely had cases where like the bloating or the bowel function is like not perfect, but not terrible by any means. Um, and then there's other symptoms that people are more wanting to fix that are more severe. And this podcast is all about hormonal health. So hormonal yeah. harmony and conditions like hypothyroidism, PCOS, endometriosis. How does SIBO impact hormonal health? Is it mainly due to the nutrient deficiency aspects or is there other mechanisms? Yeah, no, that's an awesome question. And I do think the interesting thing for me is I feel like some of the SIBO stuff, so SIBO is a symptom of something greater, um, which is an important thing to understand. So a lot of times people will get diagnosed with SIBO and they're like, this is the root cause of all my symptoms. So once I treat this, then everything else is going to get better, um, which isn't necessarily the case. I think the important question to ask if you get diagnosed with SIBO is why did that bacteria get imbalanced or overgrow in the small intestines? Like what's going on there? Um, and there's a lot of different root causes. And I think with hormones, it can be a chicken or egg scenario. So that's one thing like SIBO will definitely affect hormones. But if your hormones are off, it could lead to an environment for SIBO to develop. So that's like the first thing that I want to kind of make note of is that really sometimes people, when I work with them, they're like, is my hypothyroidism what caused my SIBO? Like they'll get really caught up trying to figure out like what caused what. And I think it's just always important to just note that if your gut's off, your hormones are off. If your hormones are off, your gut's going to be off. So like there is that, um, close connection with gut health and hormonal health. Um, I think specifically with SIBO, um, typically see, I see a lot of hypothyroidism. And when you have low thyroid hormones, I mean, that slows motility down and creates like an environment in the gut where SIBO could develop. So that can definitely be a root cause of SIBO. But then if your gut is imbalanced and you have SIBO and there's a lot of inflammation in the gut, um, it's going to hinder conversion of thyroid hormones from the active form or from the inactive form to the active form. So you can have um, suboptimal thyroid hormones start to develop because of a SIBO situation. So I see that a lot with my clients and sometimes it is hard to see what came first. I think SIBO again, in a lot of ways, the typical profile I see with thyroid hormones is suboptimal. They might not be below the reference range, but they're suboptimal by functional standards. So by kind of what do you want your optimal level of thyroid hormones to be? They're usually a little under that. Um, so that's pretty typical. And it makes sense because 20% of the thyroid hormone activation happens in the gut. So if everything's kind of inflamed in there, it causes problems with thyroid hormones. So that's one kind of big factor I think that we see with hormones and SIBO. Um, another big one would be like the HBA axis and cortisol dysregulation. Um, because if you have uh, all these imbalances in the gut and your gut lining's permeable and you're having leaky gut from SIBO, which is really common, um, you have endotoxins seeking out the, seeping out into the bloodstream, 
and that kind of activates your stress response or your HBA axis. Um, and that can sort of cause a lot of stress in the body. I mean, you have all this stress going on in your gut and that's going to affect your hormonal stress pathways. Um, so typically I'll see cortisol dysregulation a lot. Sometimes it's all, it'll be just a weird pattern of cortisol. So it might be high at night. Um, I see that a lot with SIBO and low in the morning. So people, you know, they're, they wake up and they have no energy and then they can't sleep at night, which is not a good combo. Um, so I see that a lot. And then because cortisol is such a master hormone with a lot of these other hormonal pathways, like if cortisol's wonky, it will affect thyroid hormones. It'll also affect your, affect your sex hormones. So sex hormones are a little bit weirder when it comes to SIBO because I see a lot of different kind of manifestations of that. Sometimes I'll see just generally low hormonal levels. And I think a lot of times that's due to cortisol kind of shutting um, down reproduction. So they're just like, we're, we are busy dealing with this inflammation elsewhere. We don't want you to have a baby right now. So um, it is your body trying to protect you, but it will still manifest symptoms. Um, and then I think the other area with, in terms of sex hormones uh, that can be problematic is that the estrobilome, so there's certain gut bacteria that can affect estrogen metabolism. So in a, a lot of times with people that have SIBO, they'll have higher levels of bacteria that produce beta-glucuronidase. And that is basically a, a, an enzyme that keeps estrogen from being detoxed out of your body. So what happens is if you have all these bacteria that produce beta-glucuronidase, they basically block estrogen from being excreted and it recirculates in the body and kind of builds up. So you get like an estrogen dominant state. Um, so I see that a lot. And then kind of at the other end of the extreme, sometimes if there's imbalances, you can have low levels of beta-glucuronidase and that can actually affect hormones negatively. So you might have a low estrogen level um, and it kind of manifests almost as PCOS-y type symptoms. Um, so there definitely is tons of different links that can be made with uh, SIBO and hormonal health and how it affects the whole, um, kind of how all the hormones are interacting with each other and things like that. But it's, it's definitely tightly connected for sure. Definitely. And hormones are another thing. When you have a hormone imbalance, it's a sign of something deeper. So yeah, the hormones that go out of whack, it is sometimes a gut issue, but then you can't stop there. You need to go further again. So you're constantly like getting to the root cause and finding the missing puzzle piece. So never just focus on one thing. And I'm glad that you mentioned about all the different systems working together. They don't work in isolation, but sadly, yeah. you say this to your doctor, the or gastroenterologist, they probably wouldn't understand or believe what you're saying, that your gut's causing your anxiety or causing your skin rashes. They just don't make that connection. But could you explain the endotoxin thing as well? So you mentioned that being um, kind of caused by some of these bacterial overgrowth. What is endotoxin and what does it do in the body? 
Yeah, so an endotoxin is basically a component of the cell wall of the bacteria. Um, so if you have an overgrowth of bacteria, a lot of times these endotoxins really build up in the gut and they basically trigger inflammatory pathways. So if you have a ton of these endotoxins from a bacterial imbalance overgrowth, you're basically going to be triggering your immune system to attack things. And it causes just a lot of inflammation in the gut and can basically, it's hard because I think some endotoxins are okay. It kind of regulates the immune system. It's really when things get imbalanced and then all this inflammation kicks off and you start to get the leaky gut and then those endotoxins seep into the bloodstream and then it just catapults an even stronger immune reaction. So really the role of endotoxins is just that they, our body does not like seeing them in the bloodstream. <laughs> because they're kind of foreign and promote inflammation. So um, the immune system really attacks them and that's where you can get kind of an overblown immune reaction. Uh, and that's where things, where hormones can then be affected because it's a systemic immune reaction versus a local immune, immune reaction in the gut. Mm -hmm. So leaky that, was that a good explanation? Yeah, definitely. Okay. So leaky gut can cause inflammation systemically the gut is like the center of our body it's the center of our health so if there's anything yeah. imbalanced and i love how you mentioned with fertility as well if there's a chronic low-grade infection or stress in your gut then your body is not going to want to get pregnant because it's not safe maybe your life's in danger maybe you're not having enough nutrients in your food your body doesn't really know the difference between um a bacterial overgrowth and being chased by a saber-toothed tooth tiger they all have the same response in the body as well so yeah really good explanations and i love that so we've mentioned potential hormone imbalances being one of the root causes of SIBO what are some other common potential root causes because as you mentioned it's more of a symptom so what could be driving SIBO yes and i love this question because i love the idea of digging deeper and i do i wanted to point out too because you mentioned it as well um, how all the hormonal systems work together, none of like these root causes that we're going to dive into are mutually exclusive. So a lot of times they're affecting the other root causes. Um, but I would say the big root causes that I see a lot of, um, brain gut access dysfunction. So if the brain isn't communicating properly to the gut, um, and the gut's not able to communicate properly to the brain, there can be tons of issues that arise there. So you can start getting low stomach acid, low pancreatic enzyme release, um, poor bile flow, poor blood flow to the gut, poor motility. Um, and I kind of lump some other things in there. So like below that header might be a food poisoning event. So if you've had a food poisoning event, it damages the nerves in the gut. And then your gut isn't able to basically produce something called migrating motor complexes. And these are essentially cleansing waves that sweep the small intestines clean between meals. Um, so it's a really key aspect of motility. So really the key here is that if there's a food poisoning event, the nerves are damaged and there's an impact on motility and moving things properly through the gut. So that's one big thing. And, and migrating motor complexes too doesn't necessarily have to be a food poisoning event. 
there can be other things that affect the migrating motor complex too, but it's kind of a subheader of the brain-gut access, so poor communication from the brain to the gut. Um, what, and else could, what else could trigger that? So maybe like a head trauma, but if someone's never had like an accident or something, are there other things that could impact brain function and communication? Yeah, for sure. Concussions are one that I'll, I'll look out for. Um, even having imbalances downstream. So if you have like an imbalanced gut already, like maybe it's in the large intestines, that produces a lot of inflammation, like what we talked about, um, leaky gut and things like that. Well, that inflammation causes inflammation in the brain. And if the brain's inflamed, then it's not communicating to the vagus nerve, to the gut. So it's this whole kind of vicious cycle that happens. Um, so if you're inflamed downstream, it, it will always kind of go upstream to the brain and affect how the brain's functioning. So um, just... So I said, you know, root causes work together. Well, if you have large intestine imbalance, it's going to affect the brain-gut access. Um, and when you look at people that have like IBS and IBD, so IBD is definitely a more inflammatory state than an IBS, but both of them in the research have shown low vagal tone, so low vagus nerve function. And I suspect that it's really being driven by inflammation in the gut creating like poor um, or more inflamed brain and then it's not able to really deliver messages to the vagus and to digestion. So um, that's a huge piece I think in the SIBO puzzle is this whole brain gut access and figuring out like what, why your brain gut access might not be functioning properly. Um, so that's a big, that's a big one I would say is probably with most people that I work with, there's something a little bit awry there. And is there um, anything particular that you can do to improve that? Or are there any particular tests that you can do to show which root cause you have? I know that like testing your hormones, obviously you can do that. But with your brain, if you can't remember any incidents or accidents, but you do feel like there's that connection, how do you rule that in or out? Yeah. So, I mean, there's symptoms that I kind of look for. So a lot of times if there's poor vagal tone, which is the a key, it's basically the, the brain communicates to the vagus and that's what communicates to the gut. So if the vagus nerve is weak, um, you're going to not have great digestion. And one of the big indicators for weak vagal tone is an inability to swallow really great. So sometimes if people are like, yeah, like I don't really swallow great or I have trouble swallowing pills or food, like that's a really big indicator for me. Um, sometimes I'll look at like specific signs that maybe their brain isn't functioning great. So like how's their cognition, if they're not able to concentrate super well, or they have a lot of brain fog, or um, they notice that their handwriting's declined over time. So it's not necessarily like if you've always had bad handwriting, that's not what I'm talking about. But if you've noticed, like my handwriting is definitely not great when it used to be okay, um, that can indicate that the brain's a little bit inflamed. Um, so I'll look for those symptoms. But in terms of testing, there's some things that you can test for, um, especially with the food poisoning. There's like IBS Smart, which tests for some of the antibodies that can damage the nerves in the gut. So sometimes you can run things like that. Typically, 
it's hard to run tests. Like usually some of the other tests are pretty invasive for testing the brain gut axis. Um, what I usually just have people try is doing some exercises to help stimulate the vagus, which there's things like gargling, humming, singing, um, even gagging, which sounds scary, but it's not. <laughs> not um it's not too bad but um those types of things basically stimulate the vagus and if you're doing them consistently over time people that have brain gut access issues notice that their digestion improves um sometimes with with when they're trying to gargle or they're trying to do some of these things they'll notice like it's really hard usually that's probably an indicator that they need to work on it more because they do have an issue. So sometimes there can be indicators even as you're trying some of these things that stimulate the vagus. Um, but usually I'm incorporating some of some vagus nerve stuff when I work with people. Yeah, me too. And the, I really recommend coffee enemas. So they can yeah. help with like the detoxification side of things as well. And they do stimulate the vagus nerve. So yeah, I have a blog post and I have a guide on that. So if anyone's like, what are you talking about? Then I'll refer to that in the show notes as well. Are there any other root causes that we've missed that you think are important to talk about? Yeah, so I can kind of run through the brain gut axis is one that kind of requires some explanation, but some of the other ones. So again, we've kind of talked about some of these, how the hormones can be a, a root cause too. So if you have hypothyroidism in any way, it can lead to like a higher risk of SIBO because of the motility slowdown. Um, HBA axis dysfunction. So if you do have imbalanced cortisol levels or you're kind of stuck in fight or flight all the time, I think that can even be a root causal factor. Um, large intestine imbalances. So if your large intestine isn't balanced, usually um, the small intestines doesn't function as great. Um, and large intestine bacteria affect migrating motor complex function. So certain bacteria are going to promote that, whereas other bacteria inhibit it. So there's definitely a huge piece of this whole SIBO puzzle to look a little bit downstream. And a lot of people don't do that. So that's a really key, key thing. Um, low stomach acid can be one too. So if digestion is just poor up top, um, and low stomach acid, again, has some root causal factors that could be brain gut access, hormonal too. So that's another one to unpack a little bit. Um, liver, gallbladder, pancreas issues. Sometimes if like bigger issues at play there can be problematic because if your liver's not producing bile, um, which does have some antimicrobial effects in the gut and can help regulate the gut environment, that can lead to a SIBO situation. Um, and I would say like there's more of the rare the more of the rare root causes would be things like heavy metals or molds. I don't want to say rare, but like I typically focus on some of these other things. And if they're still having issues, some of the more hidden ones would be molds, heavy metals, environmental toxins, things like that. Or sometimes there can be adhesions at play. So that's another one that can be because of, that can be from like recurrent SIBO or be a sign that you might have adhesions if you have recurrent SIBO. Um, so those would be kind of a little bit, I, I can't really focus on them when I work with people anyway, because I'm not a specialist on visceral manipulation for adhesions. Um, but they can be at play for certain people for sure. 
Yeah. So that, uh, those would kind of be the main list, I would say. Yeah. That's, and again, people will be like, where do I start? There's like so many things, but I think that's why it's important to work with someone who can go through your health history, your current symptoms, maybe the triggering point, what happened there, and then piece it together and find what's the root yeah. cause for you. But there are multiple factors as well. You don't have to just have one. You can have little bits from each one as well. So it can get a yeah, little bit well, yeah and you're totally right I feel like when people come to me they're looking for the one they're like what what is the one root cause and I'm like like that you could waste energy trying to find it but if you have symptoms you're usually going to um, have multiple so I would say usually three or four at least for people and you kind of have to dabble in each area and try to find a a strategy that's really multifaceted that addresses each one. Um, but you're totally right. Working with a, a practitioner is really important so that you're not kind of missing huge areas that are important. Yeah, absolutely. And it is a complex subject, as you could probably tell by now, and it can often be reoccurring as well. So yeah. recurring um, infections and people are constantly on antibiotics or herbal antibiotics, like chasing the issues. So, so what would your advice be to someone who constantly finds themselves like in the same place, like every couple of months with SIBO, obviously uh, trying to address the root causes, but are there any mistakes that you see people making? Yes, <laughs> there's, I definitely see a lot of mistakes that people are making and I think just generally the SIBO world is very much caught up in the clearance aspect. So most of what you see in the SIBO space is like, how do you clear SIBO? And like, um, how can we starve SIBO with diet? So most of the approaches are to starve it or to clear it. And they're usually pretty aggressive approaches. I mean, doing an herbal, doing herbal antibiotics or pharmaceutical antibiotics while it might it might be nece necessary for certain cases, is an aggressive approach. So you don't want to be doing it and relying on it over and over and over and over again. Um, and instead, I think we need to start shifting the focus more on like how to repair and rebuild. So, you know, how are you addressing these root causes that are creating an environment for the SIBO to come back and reoccur? Um, and that's where the bread and butter is and where you're going to get more long-term results. But people are very much caught up in the diet piece too. And the diet piece can only get you so far. And the mentality that you need to be so restrictive is so stressful on, on the body um, and st stressful mentally and stressful physically because your body usually isn't getting adequate nutrition if you're on a super restrictive diet. So I typically see like 80% of the people I work with, sometimes even more, um, are under eating. And I've been there myself when I had SIBO and was on a really restrictive diet. So I, I understand the mentality of feeling like, to heal, I have to be on this very restrictive diet. Mm -hmm. But if that whole strategy is preventing you from getting proper nutrition, that's a problem. So I would say that's one of the biggest mistakes people make is thinking that if they're on a restrictive diet and they're still having symptoms, they need to go more restrictive. 
and it tends to just start this downward spiral of they're just restricting, restricting, restricting. And I think number one priority should always be to nourish yourself. And then all the other stuff kind of happens later. Um, so, and I think another key area to note in that vein is that um, really diet typically is not going to address root cause. And sometimes if you go too restrictive, it actually um, can harm some of the root causes. So if you're going really low carb to starve gut bugs, you, it could be really stressful on your cortisol levels. It can be stressful on your thyroid levels. Um, and it just kind of keeps you in a stressed out state and that's not going to help the gut at all. So yeah, I mean, I would so, say um, the diet piece is the big one. And I think maybe being too aggressive is another one. I would say those are the two biggest mistakes I see. Definitely. And let's talk a bit more about them. So starting off with the um, the conventional treatments. So the conventional treatments are antibiotics. Do you see them being just as effective as the herbal alternatives or do you tend to stick with more um, herbs for the majority of people? Yeah, I mean, I definitely think it depends on the case. I think with anything with SIBO, like it's such an individual thing. So certain people are definitely going to respond better to herbals. And then some people respond better to rifaximin or some of these antibiotics for it. Um, so it, it's hard to say. I think they both have their place. Um, I would say generally, the interesting thing that I've noticed is I've started to use some, uh, some probiotics that have clearing capacity to them. So they have the strains produce antimicrobials. Um, and I find that I like starting with a conservative approach. So if someone's levels are like not super high and they're kind of mild to moderate in terms of their levels, I might start with a more conservative approach and see how they respond. And then we can always go up to more aggressive. Um, so really, the, I think it, it just totally depends on the person and the case. Some people are going to need kind of a more powerful punch, like that would be an antibiotic, and some people don't. So it's kind of working with someone that you trust that can help you weave through that and figure out what's best um, is kind of what I'd recommend with that. Yeah, me too. And I had um, Karan Krishnan on the podcast a couple yeah. of weeks ago, and I love his approach to it, how, again, we're just like acting kind of the conventional medicine roots, like kill everything, like destroy, destroy, kill, kill. But he was more about nurturing the gut microbiome and restoring the migrating motor complex, reducing endotoxin. So it's the megaspore kind of protocol, the one that you follow as well. Yeah. So I like megaspore a lot. I actually like the HU58, which is <laughs> another product that they yeah. have. That I feel like has a little bit more clearing capacity, what I've seen with working with people. Um, so I definitely like that approach. I think that's the, what I've seen in the, just working with people that are more complex that have gone down that route where it is like, I feel like you can dig yourself in more and more and more of a hole because there's, it's, you're approaching this so aggressively. And it is like, I understand 
totally that if you're in pain and you're trying to get through your day, that sometimes you need to rely on some of these things that are helping symptoms like antimicrobials. A lot of times people can get in a reliance um, for those just to get through the day. But I do think if you're just caught in that cycle, you really need to dig deeper and try to get a hold of what your root causes are. And I think I love Kieran's approach of going, approaching this more of in a gentler way that's still powerful. Because I think it is gentle, but I have seen it be successful for people doing the more conservative route. Um, and again, you can always go more aggressive if you would need to. Um, but I do think that's kind of the way to go. And I think as time goes on, people are going to be going more towards that approach and less of the aggressive approach. Um, but yeah. I think so too, because I was there like five years ago, just like oregano and then Burberry and then garlic and then everything like one after another and then it worked. And then two months later I was feeling the same and then I'd do it all again, not knowing that I was actually causing detriment to my large intestine bacteria and that was going to cause the SIBO to reoccur because my immune system was impaired. So yeah, I definitely, I can understand people just get desperate and they feel benefit from the herbs. So they continue with that. But you mentioned that you start off conservatively with some of these um, like probiotics and helping with like the gut brain connection, those types of things. Yeah. What would your approach be after that? So say that they maybe worked a little bit, how would you approach the antimicrobials again? Do you do only four weeks or do you do quite a low dose of those? Are there any particular herbs that you like and find effective? Yeah, I I think again, like it's, I tend to be a little bit more conservative. I think even with my herbal approach, um, especially if someone's been at this for a while, um, And so I really try to focus again on the root causes too. So just kind of what you're saying, I'll do conservative approaches, but also a pretty intense, like multifaceted approach to get to the root cause. And I think with herbals, a lot of times uh, I like blends a little bit. So I do like like GI Microbax is one that I'll use. Um, Sometimes I'll use things like loricidin if there might be like a yeast component. Um, to I'll use some other like speaking of yeast if there's like a I suspect a SIFO component I might use some other blends of stuff but typically I'll probably just use a GI microbax there's a couple other ones that I use too um, but a little bit less so so it just kind of depends too on like how sensitive someone is to herbals too because they might need um, individual ones so it, it does depend, but I try to keep it a little bit lower dose and not necessarily have to ramp up to this really aggressive extreme. Um, but there are people that kind of do, especially even practitioners that feel like the SIBO is coming back because you aren't aggressive enough. And that kind of makes my skin crawl a little bit to think about, but that there are practitioners that believe that. And I would just be apprehensive if you hear that because it it can dig you into a hole. And I see it a lot with people that I work with. I've seen that too. They're like, take a low dose um, oregano for the rest of your life. I'm like, yeah. oh. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and there should always be like a plan when you're off of them. Like what's yeah. the next phase? 
days. Like sometimes yeah. people are like, oh, I'm supposed to take these like kind of indefinitely or for five months or a year. Like I've heard that a lot. And it's like, ooh, like this should, there should always be an exit plan for some mm -hmm. of the stuff. I think even with the diet piece, like even if you went restrictive, sometimes people have to go a little bit more restrictive, but there should always be a plan to not be restrictive and to broaden the diet. And there should always be a plan to get off the antimicrobials. It shouldn't be an indefinite thing. Mm -hmm. So with the diet as well, there's kind of two approaches. There's the camp who low FODMAP, SCD, restrict carbohydrates, like starve the bacteria. And then there's the other camp saying, no, you have to feed them if you're using things like antimicrobials to kind of lure them out and make them more easily killed. Use prebiotics, have all the fiber, what, yeah. what side of the camp are you on or are you somewhere in the middle? I would say I'm probably somewhere in the middle. And the reason I say that is I, I do think using prebiotics is helpful, but I wonder too, so the general thought about using prebiotics with antibiotics or herbals is that, oh, you're feeding the SIBO and it's easier to kill. But I question that a little bit. Like there's not really an understood mechanism of why. And I'm wondering too, if really the prebiotics affecting the large intestine in a good way and helping in that way too. Like I think to just say like, oh, it's because it's feeding the gut bugs and that's why, like, I think it might be broader than that. Um, so I'm really, I do agree with the prebiotic approach when you're treating, depending on the case. Again, some people, if they're really sensitive to prebiotics or to FODMAPs, I don't want them feeling like they have to eat all these FODMAPs to like get the gut bugs active so they can be easier to kill and they might be kicking up some inflammation and things like that. So I think it do what makes the most sense too, like from your personal case, don't feel like you have to eat tons of FODMAPs. So like I've gotten that response from people is like, oh yeah, I know I have to eat all these FODMAPs. And I'm like, yes, you have to eat FODMAPs, but maybe in like a normal level, don't feel like you have to go out above and beyond or just eat uh, an abnormal amount of FODMAPs in your diet. To, through pain to get the result. Yeah. So to do that. Mm. yeah. So it's kind of definitely listening into how your body's responding to what you're doing. So if it is causing pain, like that's not a good thing. And um, you can maybe cut back a little bit, but I'm very much opposed to the idea that we need to starve, starve, starve. I think that digs us into a huge hole and I've seen it time and time again with people. So I'm definitely probably somewhere in the middle, but more towards the side that's feeding the gut and not starving it. Um, but within reason and how you're responding to the prebiotics and the FODMAPs. And could you just briefly explain what a FODMAP is for those who have no idea? Yeah. FODMAPs are basically like fermentable fibers in foods that base that feed gut bacteria. Um, so what you're trying to do when you're going on a low FODMAP diet is you're trying to eliminate these fermentable fibers that feed the gut bugs. And you're by doing so, you're hoping to starve the, the SIBO. Um, but I think by also doing that, you're starving the whole large intestine. So you have to, you can't really think about SIBO in a vacuum and just be very horse blinders on the SIBO because it affects everything downstream when you're on these low FODMAP diets. And that's just a really important concept because people don't really focus on the large intestine. They're very narrowly focused on 
what's going on in the small intestines and it's really important that you're seeing the full picture and you mentioned after you've done some treatments and you're trying to keep it at base so maybe you have retested and it showed that it's almost gone or gone completely what are some of the things that you do to help keep SIBO at bay do you then change to a special diet like a low FODMAP diet or do you just continue with what feels good to you is there anything that you add yeah and that's that's a great question too and I think an area of confusion for people um so I tend to approach SIBO with a broad to narrow approach whereas I feel like generally what I see is people jumping to a very narrow approach right away so they jump to this very restrictive diet and a lot of times it's unnecessarily restrictive it's stressful You're, it can be a recipe for nutrient deficiencies um, especially because people get stuck on it long term when it's supposed to be the short-term diet um, so typically I'll start out broad if someone comes to me early on so typically I'm seeing people on the restrictive part and so I'm adding foods back in but for the most part, if you were coming to me and moving through this process from the get-go, I'd want to start you off as broad as possible in the context of a whole foods diet. So kind of eliminating processed foods, things like that. Most likely maybe eliminating gluten, at least for a period of time. Um, sometimes people do well eliminating dairy, but I kind of do it stepwise so that we know like, is this a good sweet spot for you or do we need to go deeper is in kind of keep eliminating a little bit more. Um, I think that sometimes people do better on like a paleo approach for a period of time. Um, and there are rare people if they're like on a paleo approach and they're still not improving, then we might kind of drill down and start trying to figure out what their specific triggers are and trying to eliminate maybe some FODMAP. Sometimes going on a FODMAP diet for a very short period of time can be helpful just to kind of get a get um, some of the inflammation down. Um, but it's like for, typically I'd want someone to be on it for like two to four weeks. Um, I think at most like eight weeks. So I try to do like very short periods of time and there should always be a plan to reintroduce if I was gonna go on a more restrictive diet and work with someone but generally I like to keep it broader if possible and wean down to what you need to be um, but but I also think just allowing yourself to listen to how your body's responding to food is a really big thing because if you're getting this list of yes and no foods it plants the seed in your head that you will react to these no list foods and then you actually do like it does manifest symptoms because your beliefs are that these foods are bad so you can get yourself into a real disordered eating type state when you kind of follow these lists to a t of like these foods are good these foods are bad it's kind of a bad scenario to get stuck in so um it's it's really important to allow yourself to listen to what is actually working and what is not. And that's where you get a lot of power in this process versus feeling trapped on this diet and in a diet rut. Um, so it's just really important to listen in because also you could be eating something on a yes list that you might not be responding well to. 
And there might be stuff on the no list that you actually do respond well to. So it's just so individual, the diet piece. And by following this list, you're not really listening to what's working. And I've been through that as well. Like my SIBO led to histamine sensitivity and salicylic yeah. sensitivity. And then I was trying to do low FODMAP. So if you put all of the different food lists of those things together, <laughs> you're left with like five foods. Yeah. You're still scared of them. I'm like, oh my God, I'm eating them too often. Am I going to develop a sensitivity to them? So it's, yeah, very stressful time. But these food sensitivities do often go hand in hand with SIBO as well. Can you yeah. discuss maybe the mechanisms behind that and your approach to someone who's reacting to multiple food groups like histamines, like salicylates? Yeah, no, that's a great question too. And in general, I know there's a lot of like food sensitivity testing. And my general take on that is you are going to be reactive to lots of foods if you have SIBO, just naturally because you have, most likely you're going to have intestinal permeability. That's going to cause immune reactions all over the place. So really the root cause of your reactions are going to be some of these imbalances downstream, the inflammation downstream, brain gut access stuff. So really focusing on the root causes is going to help your food sensitivities probably more than getting hyper restrictive and trying to take every food out of your diet that you're sensitive to. Um, and if you are reacting to tons of stuff, there's probably a deeper issue there. There's only so far that diet restriction can take you. And um, really with someone that has like histamine issues in specifically with SIBO, usually most people that have SIBO have some level of histamine intolerance. It's a spectrum. So some people might have it way severe. Some people might just have it a little bit. So really addressing the SIBO and clearing that out and getting the gut in better balance should really help with the histamine intolerance. So for something like that, you might want to avoid the big heavy hitters. So like fermented foods, things like that, but going to the extreme of going totally low histamine is probably a little bit extreme. Um, and in a lot of cases, not necessary. I, there might be the rare cases where I'm wrong in there, but um, it's sort of approaching, I think the, the, end the end goal of your diet should always be that you're well-nourished. So when you're stacking a lot of different diets, together, are you still able to nourish your body in a, in a proper way or in supplement properly if you can't get certain nutrients is just a really key question to ask because if you can't nourish, you're going to get more intolerant to things um, and you're not going to be able to heal. Uh, and it's not a question that's asked very often in the SIBO space is, am I able to nourish my body on these diets? Because it is such a narrow focus on starving things or avoiding every food that you might be reacting to. So typically in that area, I'm going to take a more conservative approach, focus on these root causal issues and see where you're at. And if there are big triggers for you, definitely take those out. Um, but getting really caught up with the different diets, usually I try to work with clients and find a middle area where they can still nourish while avoiding their big triggers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And talk a bit about the specific nutrients that tend to be depleted with SIBO and how that can impact 
your recovery or cause reoccurrence as well? Yeah, so I would say big ones that I see a lot of is iron. So I see a lot of people that are are iron deficient, have low ferritin, um, and that can just make you feel like crap and affect hormones too. Uh, So that can be a big missing piece for people. Um, B12 can also be really low for people and make them feel like crap uh, if your B12 is low. Um, and a lot of times with those, uh, not only are, are we not, your B12 and iron, you want good stomach acid levels for those to, to be able to help with digestion of them. Um, but also gut bacteria can steal them from us. So if you have SIBO, a lot of times you're competing with these gut bacteria for your nutrients and iron and B12 are huge there. There's a lot of competition with bacteria for those things. Um, then I think, I think the other big ones would be like fat soluble nutrients. So vitamin D, vitamin A, vitamin K, vitamin E, if, and that's really because with SIBO, a lot of times you can get fat malabsorption. And if you're not able to absorb your fats, you're not able to get the fat, uh, the nutrients from the fat, um, these fat soluble nutrients, and that can be really problematic from an immune system standpoint, from a cellular regeneration standpoint with vitamin A. And, um, so that can be really problematic. Uh, I think the other big ones, which in terms of nutrients, sometimes we forget about the macros. So like I said before, there's tons of under eating with SIBO. So making sure you're getting enough carbs to support hormones making sure you're getting enough calories. Um, Usually I'll have people do a little bit of tracking just to make sure they're getting enough calories in. I'm not a huge proponent of being very regimented on tracking, but if you're doing it for two or three days just to kind of see where your baseline is, that's a really good exercise to help give you an understanding of how many calories you are eating because a lot of times people are shocked. They're like, oh, I thought I was eating so much more. And you're like, nope, <laughs> actually we're under eating a bit. So um, I would say trying to hit on those areas would be really good for people. And some people get a false sense that they're full and that they're eating yeah. enough because maybe their diet's been re- so restricted in the past and they're eating a little bit more. They feel like they're fine. Maybe their appetite's been thrown off. Maybe they just feel full because their gut's a little bit sensitive. So yeah, that's a very common issue. Is there a ballpark for carbohydrate intake that you don't like people to drop under? Yeah, so there are a few cases where I think going lower carb might be helpful, but those are really rare. I mean, sometimes if people have like prediabetes, sometimes if there's like more severe blood sugar issues, Um, There's a couple other reasons, but they'd be more rare for dipping really low carb. But I think in general, I don't like people, especially women, dipping like 150 grams under that level. Sometimes people need more. Again, that's a general guideline. Sometimes people could do a little bit or would do okay going a little under. But typically on average, I want to see people at that 150 gram point. And really if people have been eating lower than that, which is really common for the people that I'm seeing, there can be a transition phase when they are increasing carbs that can be hard to maneuver through. So 
a lot of times you're going to be increasing a little bit more fiber if you're adding some carbs in. Um, there can be some shifts in weight with water weight. Um, and sometimes you can actually have a little bit more fatigue when you're adding some carbs back in. I've seen that a lot. And I think there's just some hormonal things that happen when you're adding carbs back in that create that transition phase. Really, when you're adding anything back in, there should be a transition phase that shouldn't turn you off of doing it. But that's just something to be aware of that your body hasn't had these things for a while. It's just trying to adjust to new things and give it some time. And maybe you can up a little bit slower if you've noticed some symptoms when you have been adding carbs back in. Yeah, so don't go from like ketogenic to like soup potatoes and rice and pasta all at once because you will <laughs> <Yeah>. feel terrible. <laughs> exactly. Give, yeah, giving your gut a little bit more time to slowly introduce some of those things so that it isn't such a shock mm -hmm. um, is important. And I think that's for any food that you're reintroducing. Um, a lot of times people will try to eat something in a normal portion that they haven't eaten in a while. And they're like, well, I tried to add that in and I had all these symptoms and I'm like, well, that's pretty natural for your body to not recognize something that you haven't eaten in a while. Uh, let's try it at a lower dose and see how you do. And usually it's way better of an experiment. You might have some minor symptoms, which is okay. I think it's totally okay to have some minor symptoms when you're adding foods back in, which is a really key point that I, I when I work with people that I try to make because it, it can be scary when you've been avoiding these foods and it can be a little bit of, it can be tempting to be like, oh, this food's bad for me when it could just be your body adjusting. Yeah. So don't give up like the first time if you get a little bit of gas or a little bit of bloating don't like grill it out forever just retry it again in smaller portions don't do like 20 things at once in the same meal yeah no idea what you're doing i know that people get a little bit excited that it's time to try something else and then they go a little bit crazy and then start having it every single day or every single meal yeah um, <laughs> just take it yeah. take it easy with that one as well and another thing that can go alongside under eating or people trying all these different things to manage or overcome their SIBO is intermittent fasting. Do you yeah. tend to see that being more helpful or more problematic or is it again different for everyone? I definitely think it's different for everyone. In general, some of the people that I'd be a little bit apprehensive to try intermittent fasting are people that have hormonal issues blood sugar dysregulation, things like that. If you're someone that naturally has lower blood sugar, doing intermittent fasting might not be the best option for you at that particular point in time. Usually men do a little bit better with intermittent fasting than women do. I think with SIBO, fasting can be helpful. I don't know if it has to be intermittent fasting, um, but it can be helpful in certain cases, but always be aware of how your body's responding to it and don't feel like because someone said you have to fast, um, someone said online to you that you have to fast for SIBO or something like that. Don't feel like that you have to totally follow that 100% if you're not reacting well to it. Um, 
because that's kind of what I'll see is people who are like, oh, I feel like crap since I started fasting. I can't sleep and all this stuff. And they're basically revving their hormones up a little bit and they're not responding well to it. Then you can stop doing it. So I think sometimes it's okay to experiment, but if you're someone that you know has some of these hormonal issues, I might hold off on intermittent fasting and listen, listen to what makes the most sense for your body in terms of meal spacing. Um, that would be my main piece of advice there. I've literally seen people trying to fast between meals and they're almost like passing out. They're like, yeah. so they're getting migraines because they need to wait that six hours between the meal. It's actually causing more stress hormones and more problems yeah. than just eating. Yeah. It's like you need to weigh the pros and cons there. And if you think it's such a good, like, because people do say, you know, you need to fast in between meals with SIBO, but it's still, you need to take a, get an understanding of how you're reacting to these things is way more important than what someone says. Um, And I do think that getting control of the hormones and sometimes even if people are having blood sugar reactions too. I kind of want to dig deep too, to make sure first that they're eating enough calories. So sometimes if people are trying fasting and they're really awful, it could be that they're under eating while they're fasting. So if you're going to do it, make sure you're getting enough calories in. Um, But at the same time, if you're getting enough calories in and you're still having those reactions, like you're going to need to add a snack in or something because it's not going to be helpful for your healing if your blood sugar swinging all over the place. Um, but yeah. Exactly. And is there anything else in terms of diet or treatment or anything that we've missed or not covered that you think is important? Or do you feel like we've covered a good, I think we've covered a good range of subjects here? Yeah, I feel like we covered a lot. I don't know if there's anything specifically that we didn't cover I would say main thing with uh I think we've covered this a little bit again with like some of the food fear stuff that's a really hard area to overcome so I think if you notice that you're having food fears or disordered eating patterns or just a bad relationship with food definitely reach out to someone to get help with that because it can be very easy to develop those issues when you do have SIBO. I always tell people like SIBO is a recipe for disordered eating patterns to develop. Um, and it can all, it's very much normalized in the SIBO world, but it's something that can be really problematic in healing. Um, so that would be just kind of my last point is if you notice that you're having some of these food fears to definitely reach out and get some help and support because it can really hold back both your progress with SIBO, but then create other issues with your relationship with food and things like that. Yeah. And you could be eating the most perfect SIBO diet in the world. But if you're like we said at the start, like socially isolated or anxious or stressed, or you're just depressed because of the restrictions then your body's not actually going to benefit from that meal anyway so it'd probably be more beneficial for you to eat out with friends maybe not SIBO on track but you're enjoying yourself and you're less restrictive and less stressed too yeah and if if 
similar to the point that you're just making, if all your energy is going into keeping that perfect SIBO diet and none of your energy is going into sleeping properly, um, your relationships, your uh, hormonal health, um, your stress management practices, like if none of your energy are going elsewhere into some of these other areas, you're not going to heal. Like there's only so much diet can do. And that's just a really key point because it can prevent you from going into this downward spiral of wanting to restrict, restrict, restrict. Absolutely. That's a perfect summary and a great piece of advice for someone's listening. So if they take anything from this episode, then it's to not take diet as the number one thing and look into all of the potential root causes and not just focus on the SIBO, look at your hormones your lifestyle, your stress. So yeah, absolutely love that point. So I want to finish up with just a final few questions for you yeah. personally. So I usually ask people the the typical go-to breakfast, but let's make it more SIBO specific. So again, obviously everyone has the individual food sensitivities and things, but what could be a good breakfast option? Because breakfast is usually one of the meals where people are like, I've no idea what to eat. If I can't have <laughs> cereal, if I can't have yeah. what what can they eat? Yeah. I mean, that's hard. I'm like very much an eggs girl and I've never had problems with eggs, like even when I was going through SIBO, but I know some people do. Um, so eggs would be one. I would say another good one would be like a hash. So if you make kind of a hash with like some ground meats, if you can tolerate ground meats and some vegetables mixed mm -hmm. in, sometimes that can be a good go-to breakfast. You can make like your own sausage and things too. Um, but those would probably be like my go-to if I had to pick for like SIBO people that are a little bit more sensitive, something like that would be, would be good. Good. Yeah. And is there any cool new research or anything that you've seen lately that you're into regarding SIBO or is there any like future treatments of SIBO that are up and coming that you want to share with us? Yeah, I mean, I would say the big one, and I can send you the link, but there was a study that kind of looked at um, mapping out the small intestines microbiome and, and correlating it with symptoms. And similar, I think I mentioned some of the information at the beginning of this, the research is kind of pointing in the study that you could have SIBO from some of the testing and not have problems. But what really is the problem is that there's an imbalance in the microbiome in the small intestines, and those are the people that have the symptoms. Um, even if, C if they're not registering with an overabundance of that bacteria, they're still symptomatic. So that's a really interesting study, and they kind of went beyond that a little bit where they put people on a, um, like low fiber diet, which basically comprised mostly of sugar, which um, again, usually if people are going low fiber, they're eating a lot of sugar, but it would have been, it would be interesting to see more of the breakdown of what that was. And this was a smaller study, but basically what happened is when they put people that were typically on a higher fiber diet and put them on a lower fiber diet and a higher sugar diet, they basically started to develop symptoms and imbalances in the small intestines. So um, that to me was really interesting because a lot of the diets are low fiber and how much of some of the approaches that we're doing could be creating more problems than um, solving any. So 
to me, it's interesting. I'm very interested to see how like some of the mapping of the small intestine bacteria, all that research is interesting to me and seeing how that changes some of the models of treatment for SIBO because there is so many different opinions out there um, and it's hard for people to wade through, but I feel like the more information we get, the better we're going to be at figuring this all out. Yeah, it's interesting. And we're not promoting having a high sugar diet. Don't go out yes. there and just have like yes. biscuits and cookies and cereal at your next meal. Um, yes. Yeah, sit that with For a sure. pinch of salt, maybe. <laughs> yes, yes. And final question, Amy, is where can people find more about you online? So I absolutely love your blog and follow that and really love the information that you provided. People are going to want to follow you after this episode, I'm sure, with all the wonderful information that you shared with us today. So where can people find you online and maybe work with you if they're interested? Yeah, so you can find me at SIBODiaries.com. That's my blog. Um, I have a Facebook page. Uh, I believe it's just the SIBO Diaries or SIBO Diaries on Facebook. And then I do have an Instagram page that I also am on. I, I'm trying to be consistent with all this stuff. Uh, <laughs> And that's pretty much the main places to find me would be my website and my social media pages. And I'll include all those links in the show notes as well. So you can just head over there if you want to get the links immediately. And yeah, I've absolutely loved this episode. We've managed to cover my whole list of questions, which I'm surprised about. Um, but I'm really happy that you were agreeing to come on the podcast with me and talk about some of these things. And I love your approach to it. Again, it's not typically what we tend to hear but I think it's more realistic and obviously you've had good success with yourself and your clients so something seems to be working and I don't know about anyone else I'd rather have a less restrictive and less harsh protocol to go through and have something that's maybe um, something easier to follow longer lasting and gets the results with um, maybe less stress and less energy put into it as well so Thank you so much, Amy, for your time. And I'd love to have you back on in the future if there's any cool new research that comes up. Um, I'd love to have you back on the podcast. Yeah, I was, I'm so happy that I was able to come on and I'd be happy to come back. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Amy. Are you struggling with symptoms of a hormonal imbalance? Do you have a diagnosis of PCOS, endometriosis, or unexplained infertility and just have no idea where to start? Are you constantly trying to cover your cystic acne with makeup or make your thinning hair appear thicker with different shampoos and hairstyles? Is your period all over the place? Is it really heavy or even completely absent? Do you spend all of your time searching online for answers, posting in Facebook groups trying to find the solution to your problems? If you answered yes to any of those questions and you live in the UK, you would be perfect for my six-week online group coaching programme. Join me and nine other ladies each week as I teach you the six pillars of hormonal health, including how to regulate your blood sugar and insulin levels, improve gut health, regulate your adrenal and thyroid hormones, and finally get control over your symptoms. Each week, you'll have access to live video calls, worksheets and reading material for you to work through at your own pace. You'll get access to an interactive Facebook group where I'll be hosting weekly Q&As. This is your chance to ask me anything. There'll also be the option to upgrade for discounted one-on-one sessions and access to functional lab tests like the Dutch Hormone Panel 
and the GI map still test that you've probably heard me talk all about before on these podcast episodes. Plus recommendations for practitioner grade supplements all with 10% discount. For more information and to get involved, head over to my website vivanaturalhealth.co.uk and select the Hormones in Harmony group coaching program under the one-on-one support menu. I'll also include a link to the webpage in the show notes to this episode. If you have any questions, send me an email or DM on Instagram. You can find me at Viva Natural Health. I'm so excited to get started with this program and I'll hope that you'll join me. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Hormones in Harmony podcast. If you like this episode, please leave me a rating and review as this helps to spread the word to other women dealing with hormone imbalances. As a massive thank you gift, I'll send you a free guide, Six Steps to Hormonal Harmony. All you need to do is screenshot your rating and review, then email it to me at hormonesinharmony at gmail.com and I'll send you the link to download this free guide. If you haven't already, check out my website vivanaturalhealth.co.uk and Instagram page at vivanaturalhealth for tons more free content and inspiration. You can also schedule a free 30-minute hormone troubleshooting call to find out the next step to take in order to overcome your symptoms naturally. See you back here next week for another episode.